Hello and welcome to Broadband. Here at Broadband, we live by the philosophy that one needs other human beings to teach them how to be human. Our guide for today on this journey of communal actualization is Abdel Mehsen El Dwaysan, an entrepreneur and innovation strategist who engages with startups and corporate teams to find and validate innovative concepts. I want to set the stage for this interview by shining the spotlight on three main points of focus for our dialogue. The first being Abdel Mehsen and his unique human journey. Next, I want to explore the factories that make a good business and introduce you to the frictions that small businesses and startups experience in their journey to actualization. And finally, I want to provide you, the listener, with insights on the habits of successful business owners and introduce you to resources to achieve your business goals. Without further ado, hello, Abdel Mehsen. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well, especially now. Thanks for joining the dialogue. So what is your current entrepreneurial project or projects if you have multiple? So let's see, I've got uh, a project by the name of OneBase. So that's a direct-to-consumer type of product. It's a tray table for design for everyday living. So the whole concept there behind the project is how can we question the role of different products and items in our living rooms through the lens of downtime and helping us slow down. And so just exploring the role of furniture and helping us slow down, take time off, take some me time and enjoy it. And so that's how OneBase was born. That's amazing. So OneBase is direct-to-consumer, you said, but that can kind of alludes to another project that might not be direct to consumer is there is there one that's like completely different so the other one is like polar opposite. So I'm also a partner at a uh, private label company doing Amazon FBA. So basically what we do is we sell items on Amazon after studying demand on the platform, finding opportunities there, and then sourcing those products, maybe solving some consumer problems through, you know, we've seen in reviews from different listings, and then trying to source a product that solves that problem and selling directly through Amazon. So yeah, we're basically an FBA reseller on Amazon. What's the FBA reseller mean? So basically, you know, some items that you buy from Amazon are, you know, created and produced by Amazon, but others are created and produced by uh, third party suppliers. And so that's what an FBA business is. Yeah. It's a fulfillment by Amazon. Right. Is one base and your FBA business your first business or did you have a business before that? No, actually, my first business coming back from you know studying abroad was uh, a laundry business. It was called uh, Mirror Lake at the time when I came back from the States. So I came back to Kuwait and I noticed that pretty much everyone was starting a business around me, right? And at the time, the popular choices were you know a cafe, a coffee shop, or a gym. Right. And I wanted to do something a bit different. So silly me went on Google and like Googled easy business ideas, which is a definite no-no. I wouldn't recommend anybody do that because there is no such thing as an easy business. But yeah, I landed on a laundry, started exploring that sector a bit, noticed that there was like a misalignment between, you know, the way we wash clothes at home compared to how a laundry does it. And so that gap, that sort of misalignment is what sparked my interest in creating something different and bringing something different to the laundry scene. And that's where uh, Middle Lake was born. And so what I've done was at the time, I remember I bought a washer and a dryer, hooked them up at home. I was the laundry driver. I was the the guy that picked up the clothes. I was the guy that dropped them off when they were ready. I did pretty much everything except for ironing. One of my housemates, I quote unquote hired her, definitely gave her a salary as well for each basket that she that she ironed. And yeah, that was my laundry operation on on, on day one. So the idea there was we basically mimicked the way clothes were washed at home. So the service was a flat rate subscription service on a monthly basis. We provide you with our own laundry bag and we'd pass by on a scheduled time slot to pick up your laundry, go get it washed and bring it back within 24 hours. So that was the idea behind Mirror Lake. 
that's a really cool and innovative idea. And you usually hear about businesses starting in the garage. Very rarely do you hear about businesses starting in the laundry room. Um, what were some of the early wins of your laundry business? I mean, you mentioned it being very similar to the way people do laundry at home. So I'm assuming people were very perceptive and very comfortable with this new idea. Was that the case? Uh, that actually wasn't the case, unfortunately. So this is completely naive, I know. But I thought I quote unquote launched when I just posted something on Instagram. I was like, okay, I have my profile, you know, at Mirror Lake KW or something at the time. And I posted, the, you know, the first post like we're live we're, and this is our idea. And then nothing happened. One week later, something magical happened, which was nothing again. A month later, nothing happened. Right. And so th this was basically my first lesson. Like it's not about just building something, but how are you going to get people to know that you've built something? You know, how do you get to your customers? So that was lesson one from me. Phenomenal. Uh, you mentioned that, or I mentioned that you are an innovation strategist. That's a term that's a little vague to me. What is the job description of an innovation strategist? So I'd say an innovation strategist is someone that helps you translate customer expectations or customer needs into new opportunities for growth, new products, new revenue streams, new ways to get to your customer. So he's the guy that sort of guides you to that. And along the way, I usually like to say that I help teams explore, test, and communicate innovative concepts. And I believe those are the, let's say, the core skills that an innovation strategist coaches a team on. I see. And so I'm assuming you've learned this through your own experience, whether it be having your wisdom through starting businesses and having those businesses maybe fail or maybe studying and going into the academic world of innovation. Is that how you develop the know-how to be an innovation strategist? Yeah, absolutely. So it started, you know, the first time I heard the term innovation, it just struck me as something that was interesting. Uh, and I so explored it, as you mentioned, from an academic point of view initially, um, wanted to learn everything that had to do with innovation. You know, the core concepts, experimenting, testing, bringing something new to a market really appealed to me. And so I was on this furious path of just relentlessly learning and getting my hands on every single, you know, article, podcast, uh, book that I can get my hands on just to learn. But at the same time, I wanted to apply these concepts. I wanted to see like, do they pan out in real time? And are they helpful? Which ones are helpful? Which ones aren't? And so that's around the time when I started, you know, morphing and shaping my own understanding of the practice and sort of calling out certain principles that just didn't make sense to me or didn't, didn't pan out basically. Well, you know, a study conducted by the National Business Capital and Services in 2019 found that 90% of startups and small businesses fail within the first 10 years. That's thousands of entrepreneurs losing either time or money within the first 10 years. What are some of the reoccurring reasons that all these small businesses are failing? So the way I see it is a lot of emphasis has been put on execution at the detriment of the idea itself. And I go back to a study that was done by CB Insights in 2019 for the leading causes of startup failures. And the leading cause was no market need. Now, when you think about it, no market need, this has nothing to do with execution, right? You can execute really perfectly, but if there is no market need, like if you're solving a problem that does not really exist, people don't care enough to pay to solve that problem, then execution doesn't really matter. So I think people tend to spray around this idea of, you know, pick any idea. The idea doesn't really matter. Execution is where success happens. And I just don't buy that. The way I see it is, you know, bad idea plus great execution is still failure. That's actually extremely interesting to me because what that means is you need to invest a lot in marketing and understanding what the streets want, whether it be you go on social media and see what people are tweeting about or you go to the grocery store and see what is flying off the shelf, right? I mean, 
how are you going to be able to develop the uh, ability to understand the market need? Yeah, that's absolutely a great question. This is one of the core parts that I actually teach is, you know, people tend to focus on validating the idea. Very few people tend to focus on validating the opportunity. Like before you jump into an idea, like does the opportunity even exist? And so one of the key indicators for a market opportunity is payment, right? People can complain, you know, all day about a problem. But if you ask them, okay, what have you done to solve that problem? If they say nothing, they're likely never going to do anything to solve that problem. Like if they'd never paid for a product to solve that problem, then the market does not exist. So payment to me is the ultimate indicator for a market existing. The other thing is like someone has had to do something you know, made an effort to solve that problem before, even if it wasn't payment, or maybe he's hacked some solution or taped a couple of solutions together to solve that problem. Those to me are not necessarily natural behavior. Someone has done something like it's this idea of, let's say there's a product that exists in a market, but it's being used not for its intended purposes. Like if that happens, that's a question mark. That's a flag right there. That's an indicator to me that there's an unmet need, that there's a problem that, you know, a product is failing to solve. And that to me is an indicator for market need. I always thought that like aliens would be the best business people. Like if an alien came to earth, they would have successful companies because they would see the way we are interacting with certain products and services and say, oh, you're doing that very inefficiently because they're not living in this paradigm where we've always done it this way. So they can maybe see pathways that we humans can't. Right? So how can us that are stuck within this paradigm and the, we've always done it that way mentality, how can we start to find these new pathways and unique pathways for new marketing or new products and services? Yeah. So the way I like to see it is, you know, you need to be aware of your own habits, your own decisions and what products you buy. We take this for granted and we take what is familiar for granted. Some of the best businesses were scratch your own itch type of businesses, meaning that you've solved your own problem. So you yourself are the customer. So we tend to overlook that because the way we see it is, oh, this is just the way things are, but that's not necessarily the, the way things should be, right? And so, so the idea is like, if you start with your own self, it's like you found your first customer, now go find other people like you. Okay, so say I found something that is worth selling. People want to buy it. Uh, what are some of the best practices that I can do as a startup where I can avoid catastrophic failure within the first 10 years? So we've talked about you know validating the opportunity before validating the idea. The thing about us humans is we're idea machines. So we're wired to think of ideas first. You know, you're standing in line at you know at a Starbucks and the line is way too long and you're growing impatient and you're thinking, boy, it would be great if there's another cash register there. That right there is an idea, right? You're proposing an idea, you're proposing a potential solution. So we're wired to think of ideas. But if you take a step back and think about like this is an idea, but does the problem really exist? Like, is there really a problem there? And so if you think about it, like, okay, a second register would make things go faster at the Starbucks, but at the same time, Starbucks wants to cross sell you other things that are right next to you while you're waiting in line, right? So that's a great idea, but it does not solve a problem, you know? And so it's this idea of, you know, always think about validating the opportunity before validating the idea. And when I say that, it's 
you know, when you validate the opportunity, you're trying to understand the entire dynamic around the problem and the context that problem lives in. So it's not just from the customer's point of view, but it's also from the business's point of view, right? For the customer standing in line, it would be great if this line goes faster. But from the business side of things, no, we want this line to stay, you know, as long as it can get, right? Wow. I mean, I just got my mind blown because I, as a customer, want to get in and out as fast as possible. But then I just realized the business wants me in their brick and mortar shop as long as they can get me because I can maybe buy a sandwich while I wait, or maybe there's a candy bar that looks enticing. Or the fact that there's a huge line outside of the store means this place is worth going to, right? But okay, so I never really thought about it that way. So I guess one of the takeaways that I can apply to my life is always ask, what's the opportunity from this pain point? Is that something that is fair? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey guys, this is the part of the podcast where people usually tell you to buy this product or subscribe to this service, but we don't have any sponsors yet. So we'll sell ourselves instead. We have four simple asks. One, please subscribe if you haven't already. Two, share the podcast, share it with your friends, share with your family, and share it with a stranger. Start a conversation. Three, check out the show notes. You can find all the references that we've already made and are about to make on there. And four, engage with us on Instagram and email. Enjoy the rest of the show. Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Richard Branson, Tony Stark. I mean, what these innovators have in common is a living and breathing legend, right? You can call it a pioneering presence or a visionary aura, but how important is the superstar CEO and the marketing machine behind the CEO to the success of the company? Well, that's a powerful question. Okay. So if the value proposition is the CEO, then it's very important. So let's think about Kanye West, for example. Like the value proposition is I'm buying sneakers from Kanye West, right? So Kanye West is behind this. So it's incredibly important that you know Kanye West is the celebrity he is. Otherwise, that business would be nothing, right? I mean, think about me trying to start a shoe line. You would, there's no value proposition there, right? But it's because it's Kanye West. So the CEO status is incredibly important in that case, because that's the value proposition. That's why you're buying his sneakers. But if the value proposition is not the CEO, then I don't think that visionary CEO is necessarily as important. I think some of the most innovative and profitable businesses are led by you know, non-superstars or non-celebrities, not people you would find in the media, definitely. Okay, so the word, in, I mean, I think you and I have mentioned the word innovation like at least a hundred times at this point. And the word innovation is a buzzword that's often overused. What are the characteristics of a true innovation? Okay, so innovation is new value in new ways. Many people have tried to like define it in different ways. Many people have tried to express it in different ways. But ultimately, you're bringing something new and providing new value along with it. So there's this element of newness and an element of utility to it. So this other word that gets you know incorporated with innovation is creativity. And so people tend to mix it up. The general difference between the two is innovations solve a problem. Creativity does not necessarily have to solve a problem. Okay. And kind of, I think another word that gets confused with innovation is invention. What's the difference between an innovation and an invention? Okay. Good question. So invention is proving the utility of something. So think about patents, right? We've proven, you know, we've made a patent for folding screens, let's say folding mobile phone screens. You're proving the utility of something. Innovation is when, you know, you tie it to a business model. So they've already invented folding phones. But is it the right time now for a market to be there? Do people really want it? If they do, then that's when it becomes an innovation. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So it's all about kind of the timing. You know? And that's really important in making sure that your invention is innovative. Uh, 
Are innovators born or are they self-made through their own effort? They're definitely not born. That's not the way I see it. They're definitely shaped, formed. It's definitely a skill set. So this is actually what I teach and what I coach on is I help individuals become better innovators through, you know, learning the skills of, you know, how do I find an opportunity? How do I test an idea? And then eventually, how do I communicate it? I think those are the three core skills that, you know, of the innovator. And those are definitely skills that you can develop over time. And what are these skills and best practices that are commonly utilized by innovative people? I mean, you just mentioned a couple, but are there a list of them? Is it common between Elon Musk and Tony Stark or what? So, you know, different people have different like aptitudes or different capabilities. And and I think it's not like this magical formula that you need to have, you know, 70% of communication, 20% of testing. It's it's not like that. But the general idea of being inquisitive, being this person that wants to question what is, is definitely something that's helpful. Being the person that knows how to communicate a new idea is also very important because no matter how innovative your idea is, if you don't know how to communicate it, A, to your customer, B, to your own employees, C, to your partners, D, to your, let's say, investors, then you know, you're going to have a hard time. And you write in your blog, which is a phenomenal blog, by the way, well done. Most of those titles are like, there's clickbait. They just make you want to click on those titles so you can read them. <laughs> we have to make Google happy. But you write in your blog that brainstorming is BS, which is a very provocative claim, especially since like we're taught to brainstorm in higher education and grad school and corporate seminars and leadership programs. What's your beef with brainstorming? I think it's a waste of time. If you're looking for innovative ideas, it's a waste of time. I think the reason it became popular is because these innovation gurus, right? They needed to sell their training. And the best way to like visualize the process is to do brainstorming and get all these sticky notes and stick them onto walls and things and take beautiful pictures for Instagram. Innovative ideas are found. They are not thought up, right? So you're not sitting in this all glass room trying to think up you know, an innovative idea. The innovative idea comes as you're having an interview with someone, as you're talking to someone, as you're out there, you know, noticing patterns or looking at how people behave or how people use something. Brainstorming is great if you're looking for creative ideas, but if you're looking to be different because you're solving a new problem or a different problem or finding a new understanding of a problem, then, you know, don't put yourself in, in an all glass room and try to, you know, come up with something. Here's something to, to back it up because I know people love statistics, right? So there's a study by uh, CapShare of where serial entrepreneurs found their ideas, right? Only 3% of serial entrepreneurs got their ideas from brainstorming. Let's look at the, the other statistics here. 23% of their ideas came from scratch your own itch. 41% came from industry expertise. Here's what this tells me. Scratch your own itch means I've been living this problem. I am the customer. I know what's happening. So it's like I'm, I'm living and breathing the context of the problem. And so as I'm living the problem, that's until I get to a point where I'm saying, why is this this way? Right. And then the problem starts, then the idea starts shaping, right? It's not brainstorming. You're living the context of the problem. The other aspect here is, you know, 41% of them found their ideas from industry expertise. Again, this is not thinking up ideas, you know, you're finding them. Right. Wow. Okay. So it kind of makes me feel like I've been doing a lot of things or maybe I've misunderstood things and practicing them in a maybe not so efficient way for innovation. So, Phenomenal. And I love how passionate you were about all of that. And, you know, it seems to me that you're a passionate person in general, right? Whether it be being a father, an employee in the oil and gas sector, an entrepreneur, an innovation strategist, 
All four of those hats require an intense amount of attention. How do you manage your time so that you're successful on each front? <laughs> you're calling me out here. I wouldn't say I'm successful with these. It's a, it's a continuous struggle. One thing, you know, a mindset shift that has worked for me is I no longer view, you know, balancing all of those things on a daily basis, right? At minimum, I see it on a weekly basis. So in a day, right, it could be an entirely spent with family. I wouldn't say like, why didn't I work on a project today? Why wasn't I productive today? Right? So on, uh, I don't see it on a daily basis. I see it at a minimum on a weekly basis. Like on a weekly basis, I want to spend time with family. I want to exercise. I want to spend time on this project, second project, third project, and on my day job. Like if I balance all those on a weekly basis, then I'm fine. But I'm not going to stress over trying to balance these on a daily basis. Mm. Okay. That's a really good way to see it. You know, so I really like the idea of kind of giving yourself as much slack as possible. Right. So that you can live life and understand that, you know, sure, today my priority is entrepreneurial decisions. And then tomorrow it'll be raising my son. Right. You know, so I imagine that many entrepreneurs to yourself balance a full time job and a startup. What factors would contribute to you making the leap of faith from being an employee and entrepreneur to just being a full time entrepreneur? So let's say about five years ago. I heard uh, a guy called Mark Asquith say something along the lines of, I want to get to a point where I can take my kids to and from school without someone somewhere, a boss or whatever, telling me I can't because I got to be somewhere else that, I, that doesn't matter to me. Something along those lines. And so the way I saw it was very binary, right? It created that hatred for the job that I currently have. But I slowly stepped away from that, from thinking about it that way, because it doesn't necessarily need to be binary, right? And if I think about it, a lot of the projects that I lead are actually funded by my salary. So if I didn't have that, I would never be in the position I am today, right? And so I've changed sort of my view on things. And the way I see it right now is I need to at least have some form of traction for me to consider leaving my day job. I think six months worth of expenses in my bank account is a must. I think we've seen, you know, some entrepreneurs unfortunately had to close shop because they didn't have, you know, enough runway with that. And that's definitely a difficult time, especially, you know, with Corona and everything. And I just feel like if, you know, whenever my day job becomes an obstacle to growing my projects, I think that's when I would consider leaving my day job. You know, with my first business with Mirror Lake, what I realized, you know, afterwards is I wasn't actually managing the business. I was actually employing myself in my business. And that's like, let's say, a one-on-one, you know, business no-no is you design a business, you create a business to manage it, not to employ yourself in it. And so many entrepreneurs that do balance a day job tend to think that there is not enough time for me to practice my passion or launch a business. And I'd actually challenge that by saying, you know, Maybe you're actually designing a business where you're employed in it, not a business that you're managing. So it's just a thing to reflect on. Phenomenal. I've never really owned a business. And so I, I wouldn't really understand the difference between managing a business and employing yourself in the business. What are some of the, the differences between the two ways of interacting with your startup? So every startup, I feel like has, let's say, a strategic aspect to it and a managerial aspect to it. And when tasks become recurring tasks, things that need to be done on a daily basis, things that need to be done on a weekly basis, whenever you're, you find yourself doing those sorts of things, especially the daily tasks, that's when you start thinking about, okay, maybe I am employed in my own, uh, in my own business and not actually managing it. Now, I say this with like a huge asterisk next to it because different businesses come in different shapes and forms. So if your business is, you know, you're a content creator or let's say an audience first business. So you have to create content. That's definitely a task that you have to do on a daily basis. Um, technically, yeah, you've employed yourself, but it's just the dynamics of that type of business that makes it so that, you know, it's not the case for it. 
Phenomenal. What's an important message that you want our audience to take away from our discussion? I'd say play the cards you've been dealt in life, right? Your situation is totally different, totally unique. And so what I'd say is learn from people teaching you how to think, not from people telling you what to do. So for example, there's this thing about, you know, quit your day job, don't quit your day job, right? I think both pieces of advice are irrelevant and they're dangerous. I think a better way is to say, you know, here's how you should think about it. Here's how to mitigate the risk. Here are some factors that play a role in making that decision. You know, anybody that's teaching you how to think is someone that you should be listening to. Anyone that's telling you exactly what to do, take it with a grain of salt. And the reason being, as I mentioned, is because you're born into your own situation. You have your own unique set of circumstances. You can't be taking exact decisions as the other person next to you. That's really cool. It, you know, it, I think, honestly, there's a generation of people that just want to be told what to do. So I feel like a lot of people just find it very convenient if you just tell them what to do and they'll mindlessly act on your instructions. I think that's why, you know, the most popular articles are like 10 ways you can do this, five yeah. best ways, three secrets, you know, that's why they are popular. Exactly, exactly. So how can our audience members, our listeners develop the will to want to push themselves and do things in a, in a creative way? I think give yourself the opportunity and space to experiment and test out things, especially when it comes to, you know, startups, building products and, and things like that. One thing I'd suggest is, you know, don't think of whatever it is you're doing at the beginning as a business. That comes with a lot of baggage. Think about it as, you know, you're experimenting. You're just testing things out. Whenever you put yourself in that mindset, you've already set yourself up with zero expectations from yourself and also from the people around you. You know, I'm just experimenting. I'm just testing things out. I want to see what's happening, right? And if you find yourself like investing, starting to invest time and money on it, advance it to being a project. This experiment is now a project. It still doesn't have that baggage that comes with, you know, I'm, I'm working on my business. I'm starting a business. And, and then if it fails, then you want to shy away from, you know, mentioning it. You just want it to fade into obscurity. But but yeah, so just start with, you know, I'm experimenting. Now it's a project that I'm investing time and money on, and then it could become a business. Phenomenal. Abdul Mehsan, thank you for joining the dialogue, for sharing your insights, and for satiating our curiosities. I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for the platform. Thank you for the opportunity and for your time as well. This podcast would not be possible without your support. So please subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends and family, check out the show notes for any references made, and engage with us on Instagram and email. Thank you. Thank you.